Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. It's an expository preaching church, and we go through verse by verse. And you would need your Bible, so if you do not have your Bible, just sit right next to someone who has a Bible, and that'll help you as we go through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. And I've titled the sermon, Put Off Bitterness and Put On Forgiveness. Put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. Bitterness has been medically linked to glandular problems, high blood pressure, cardiac disorders, ulcers, and even insanity. One leading psychiatrist wrote, 90% of all people in insane asylums could be released immediately if they would learn how to forgive or how to be forgiven. An article from the Gospel Herald writes this, There was a man whose health was good. He was sturdy and strong, his heart action and and blood pressure were fine. Then his father died and he got into a prolonged legal dispute with his sister about their father's will. The case went on to court and the sister won, and from that day on, the man could think of nothing more than the lawsuit and his sister. He talked about it, he thought about it, filled filled himself with it. It became an obsession for him. And each day, he began to hate his sister more and more. And, and then he began to have difficulty with his heart and, and with blood pressure. And next, his kidneys bothered him. Before many months, complications killed him. It seemed obvious that he died from bodily injuries brought on by powerful emotion. I believe the man killed himself by bitterness. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, we see bitterness gives rise to anger and wrath, which in turn gives rise to loud yelling or speaking loudly, which in turn gives rise to name-calling or slandering, and then in turn to all kinds of evil. And we have two points here. The first one is found in verse 31, put off all evil ways. And the second one is verse 32, put on kindness, tenderness, or tenderheartedness, and and forgiveness. Let's look at the first point, put off all evil ways. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 reads, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. These evil character traits should never be true of your life as a believer. These should be discarded, despised, abstained from, renounced, Apostle Paul begins by listing them in verse 31. He begins with the six particular sins. Let us begin with the sin of bitterness. 
It is from the Greek word pikra, from which we get our English word picric acid. It's an explosive compound. It's a, it's a chemical that will literally eat you alive. Just one to two grams can kill you. It's so toxic. The Old Testament word for bitterness is the word mara, M-A-R-A-H. In the Webster's New World Dictionary, it means an unpleasant taste, acrid, causing sorrow, discomfort, or pain. You become bitter when you hurt, when you're hurt by somebody. You either heard what somebody said something about you, or someone said something to you, and it has dug deep into your life. You do not like it, so you harbor ill feelings against that person. Bitterness is our reaction to someone else's wrong, or our perception that someone else has wronged us. And you dwell on your grievances, you're paying great attention to it, you're churning it, you're nursing it, until it works you into a state of bitterness. As someone said, bitterness is the dead poison of an unforgiving spirit. The bitter person is sour, Venomous, cynical, keeps a grudge, is harsh, and critical. You know, beloved, when you are bitter, you do not come to give a blessing. When you are bitter, you come and you only find faults in everything. Isn't that true? The bitter person keeps a score of wrongs. It is literally like maintaining an accounting book. Like keeping a scorebook in which you record, I mean, you record all wrongs that are done against you. And you keep a record of it. Uh, you, you don't wake up one morning and say to yourselves, I'm going to be bitter today. I'm going to cook bitterness from scratch. I will throw it into the microwave for a couple of minutes. No, you don't wake up doing that. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 reads that no root of bitterness springs up. No root of bitterness, meaning bitterness is a root so we are to watch over our hearts because that's where this comes from. We got to keep a watch. We got to guard our hearts that bitterness would not overtake us. It is the same understanding. Just like pastors keep a guard or watch over their flock in the same way we are to watch over our heart from bitterness. And if unguarded, it springs up and it chokes the fruit of the Spirit. That's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. So, 
what are some things that give rise to bitterness? Well, placing high expectations on people. I mean, on your spouse, your friends, your fellow believers in the church, even your pastor. You expect them to behave in a certain way towards you. You expect them to act in a certain way. You expect them to treat you in a certain way. You expect them to give in to your demands. In other words, you want them to do what you want. I mean, you place such unreasonably high expectations on people that, beloved, you're going to be disappointed. You know why? Because no one will ever measure up to your standard. And if your joy comes from those expectations on other people, then, beloved, you're going to be all the more disappointed because those things become your Savior instead of Jesus Christ, who should be your Savior. Instead of having your true joy come from Christ, you are letting your joy come from those situations and those expectations. You may be saying to me right now, Pastor, that is hard. Yes, I know it is hard. This is why we need the grace of God. This is why we need a Savior. This is why we rely on God's grace. And this is why Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You need to rely on the grace of God. A couple of years ago, in another place I was counseling, and, and after my, I remember, second session or third session, the wife mailed me letters. It had a huge packet that came to my home with letters. She had written down in detail all the complaints against her husband. She had detailed all the wrongs he had committed against her from a wedding day. Beloved, Love does not keep a record of wrong done against you. Love has a bad memory. Bitterness, on the other hand, poisons the entire person. I mean, it does more damage to the one who is bitter than against whom it is targeted. Bitterness always inflicts a deeper wound on the person who harbors it than against whom it is directed. A man who had a car trouble. And he was on a lonely road and he found a farmer. So he and his wife asked the farmer to tow him to the nearest garage. On the way, his wife was protesting to her husband about the fee the farmer charged. It's scandalous, the wife said, to charge us $10 for, for towing this car only three miles? To which her husband replied, Never mind, darling. I'm having my revenge. I've got my brakes on. Many a person 
has thought that getting revenge will take care of it. But all the time, the major damage was being done to that person. That's what happens in bitterness. Someone said, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Let's look at a few examples in the Bible about bitterness. Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, was bitter because God disciplined him. As Cain was bitter about his about this discipline that he killed his brother. Esau, another man in the Bible, Esau and Jacob, was bitter to his brother Jacob. And we know that Esau was a, a profane, ungodly man, and the Bible talks about it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. We know that he sold his birthright. He didn't care for his birthright for a meal. And at the base of Esau's bitterness was unbelief. He failed to see God's hand in his trial, especially when his brother deceived him. Instead of seeing God's hand in his trials, he took things in his own hands in his bitterness. And what did he do? He went and married a Canaanite woman because of his bitterness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, tells us about Esau. It says, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And many times, you and I as people make choices because of our bitterness, and sometimes those choices cannot be reversed. It cannot be. What are some of the choices that people make today in bitterness? Some divorce their spouses. They're so angry, bitter. Some of them leave their home. They leave their loved ones behind because they're bitter. Some get into addictions. Church members become bitter with their pastor. Or with some other members in the congregation. And they stop talking to each other. For years and years. Sometimes they may even leave the church. Because they become so bitter. Sometimes pastors get bitter with their congregation. And they leave the church. To find another church. We have Naomi in the book of Ruth. Naomi. Her husband died. And she was left behind with her two daughter-in-laws. By the way, Naomi's husband's name was my God is king. Every time Naomi called her husband, she was actually reiterating and reminding herself, my God is king. I don't know how many times she would have called her husband by that name. And every time she called her husband, she was saying what? My God is king. But when she went through the trial, 
and she lost a husband, and she lost a sons. She forgot my God is king. And the Bible says that she was bitter. It says in Ruth chapter 1 that she returned to Bethlehem, and the woman in Bethlehem was, was stunned to see Naomi. Maybe she had aged more than her age. That's what bitterness does to people, right? Shows it on their countenance. And maybe they didn't recognize Ruth say, are you Ruth? Is it Ruth? And you know what Ruth said? By the way, Naomi means pleasant, pleasant woman. You know what? Sorry, no, I said Ruth earlier. You know what? Naomi is pleasant woman. And Naomi said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Naomi even failed to recognize God's hand on her circumstances. It was not Ruth. Ruth was the daughter-in-law. I'm talking about Naomi. We have another illustration of a bitter person in the Bible. Ahithophel, who is a counselor to David. And you hear about this story in 2 Samuel chapter 17, that Ahithophel counseled Absalom, the son of David, to allow him to pick up 12,000 men so that he could pursue David and kill David and bring the entire army back. It was a great idea. It was a great idea to Absalom. It was a great idea to the people of Israel. But Absalom said, you know what? I need to check with Ushai. So Absalom and the men called Ushai in and asked for counsel. Ushai said, uh, that's a bad counsel that Aithophel has given. Please do not listen to that. And Absalom and the men of Israel were convinced that, yes, Ushai's counsel was good. And so they allowed Ushai to do what needed to be done. When Aithophel recognized realized that his advice had not been followed, he became bitter about it. And the Bible says he was disappointed that he went home, he saddled his donkey and returned to his house in his hometown. And after setting his household in order, the Bible says he committed suicide. Bitterness led him to commit suicide. Why? Because his counsel was not taken. As you see all these illustrations in the Bible, the bitterness was due to the response to the situa situation. But you know King David, you know how he responded? We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 30. David was greatly distressed. Why? Because the people spoke of stoning him. But the Bible says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. Instead of being bitter, he strengthened himself in the Lord. Come back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Next on the list of sin after bitterness is wrath and anger. Seems synonymous, but they're two Greek words. Wrath is the Greek word tumos, and anger is the Greek word orge. Tumos is agitated, heavily 
agitated, vehement anger. That's like a mighty emotion rushing relentlessly like the waves of an ocean. Tumas can also be translated rage. It's like a man breathing heavily and rapidly while pursuing an enemy. It's hidden. It's unexpected. Until it becomes explosive. It's also defined as unrestrained temper. You know, it's like losing a basketball game and throwing the ball hard on the floor. Have you seen that? Maybe losing a volleyball game and just throwing the ball far away in anger. You know, it's like exploding in anger at your spouse and rushing into the, uh, into the room and, and closing the door so hard that the door comes off the hinges. Or like punching a hole in the wall in anger. And I've seen that. And I've dealt with this with the, with the, with the person who used to get so angry that there were literally holes in his wall because he would punch himself so hard. You know, it's, it's that form of anger that is tumas. Then there is another form of anger. That's the next word right there is the word orge, meaning long-lived anger. It's long-lasting anger. I mean, in this kind of anger, a person is actually taking time to think about how he's going to respond. And when he's waiting and thinking, he's not meditating on God's word. He's not letting God's word be the grid to temper his temper, but instead he's thinking, he's brewing. He's hunkering down in his hurt. He's nursing it. He's brooding over it. And he's not allowing his anger to die down. It's long-lasting anger. It refuses to be pacified. One commentator writes, The angry person is brooding, meditating, dwelling upon the things that make him angry. Choosing to think things that stir up angry responses, feeling your emotions. This is a form of anger in which you have not yet displayed your anger externally, but it is brewing up within you. It is being cooked in the slow cooker. I mean, you can hold off this kind of anger without exhibiting it for a long time. It's anger waiting to explode like the Vesuvius. All of a sudden, it just blows out. You are clamming it and it's kind of building up within you. And finally, it just comes out. Why? Because an angry person is fully convinced that they have every right to be angry. I mean, they continue to dwell upon their hurt, upon the fact that they have been wronged, and in the process, they develop a sense of entitlement. 
This is what happened to Jonah in the Bible. In, in Jonah, we read, when God asked him, he said, do you well to be angry? You know what Jonah's response was? Yes, I do. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. That was Jonah's response. I mean, an angry person cannot be easily persuaded. They are too deeply invested in the conclusion to surrender their anger freely. They are not going to be persuaded. I was thinking of some of the things that cause people to be angry. Things like this. I want to be respected and appreciated. I want to be happy and comfortable. I want to be pain-free. I want to be successful. I want to be treated fairly. I want to be sexually fulfilled. I don't want others to waste my time. I want to be successful. And I want successful, obedient children who make me look good. I want a well-paying, satisfying job. I want a spouse who is affectionate. I want a spouse who is respecting me. I want a tidy home. I want a spouse who is always on time. I want plenty of money. I want a position of leadership in the church. I don't want anyone cutting me off in traffic. I mean, if you look at all these things, the crux of the issue is, I want my way, I want my rights, and when I don't get my way, I will use sinful anger to get my way and dominate and control others. One writer said this. One writer said, there are many bullies in families, in neighborhoods, workplace, and even churches who use anger to control others and to get their way. Uncontrolled anger is a huge problem in our society today. You see this in the road rage, where one motorist will kill another motorist. We can see it in the violence that happens at little league sporting events, or even in your school sporting events. One father beating up another father, one mother yelling at another mother, one dad beating up the coach because the coach didn't allow the daughter to play in the game. I mean, it happens even in churches, between church members. There's a cold war that's going on between certain members in the church. On the surface, everything seems good, but under the surface, there's a cold war. And, and, and sometimes churches are split, and unity is affected because... Members of factions, they've formed groups or cliques, and if one member in one group is angry, then the entire group gives off a vibe that affects the entire church. Is God honored? No, my beloved. God is not honored. I mean, it happens in families, between spouses between parents and children, between siblings. Families break down, homes are torn apart. It happens in your workplace. 
You have an unreasonable supervisor and you're angry with him or her. When the Bible tells you to submit to your employers, except in one condition, except if they cause you to disobey God. But otherwise, you need to submit to your employers. And you come up saying, well, I'm unjustly treated by my boss. Well, you are to patiently endure instead of getting angry. But instead, employees get angry. I mean, when they see that one person is being treated unfairly or fairly, the other employees get frustrated or angry. Whatever you call it, whether you call it I'm frustrated, whether I'm irritated, it's all synonyms for anger. Shall we go on to the next word in Ephesians 4.31? So we looked at bitterness, wrath, and anger, and now let's look at clamor. You see, it's a progression of events. Your bitterness is not handled. It causes you to be wrathful and angry. And when that is not controlled, now it goes into clamor. The word clamor means loud speaking, shouting. Now violence comes in. I mean, this is when men and women are in a state of rage. They do not speak to one another, but shout at one another. They lift up their voices. The peace is gone. And now you are interrupting and arguing. And when you're trying to interrupt and argue and the other person doesn't listen, now you get louder. And when you get louder, the other person gets louder. And, and it goes on getting louder and louder and louder. And the intensity keeps increasing because you think if you get louder and louder, the other person will listen to you. But no one gives up. And then maybe at the end of it, one person will say, Would you please keep quiet when nothing else works? And then you walk away and slam the door. It's, it's total loss of control. Total loss of self-control. You've given free reign to your emotions. The Webster's Dictionary calls it noisy shouting. Noisy shouting. The next sin in verse 31 is slander. It is saying things that are harmful to others. It could be deliberately saying things or repeating things about others that are calculated to do them much harm. Now, it's one thing to deliberately say things, but also assuming things about others is also slandering. It's words spoken to harm the character of another person. It's the Greek word blasphemia. Malicious misrepresentation, personal defamation, maliciously misrepresenting the facts to blacken another person's character, words used to discredit another person's character. John McCarter writes, to slander people is to blaspheme God inasmuch as he created man and woman. He continues, people are treated, are to be treated with dignity. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. 
Paul continues on with the sixth evil. It comes after the phrase, be put away from you along with all malice. Let's look at all malice first. And we'll come to that phrase later on. All malice, it's the word kakos. Evil, all kinds of evil. Now you know if you do a study of the word all in the Greek, what is the meaning of all? All means all. Thank you. It's all evil. It's, it's a catch-all. I've talked about bitterness. I've talked about wrath. I've talked about anger. I've talked about clamor. I've talked about slander. And now that, that were not enough, all kinds of evil. That's why I've, my outline, it says, put away all kinds of evil. Everything that's depraved, base, wicked, mean-spirited, dislike for certain people, being hateful of certain people. You know, it's a deep-seated desire to see certain people suffer. That's evil. You know, when you don't like someone and that someone goes through some tragic, the first thing that comes to your mind is, good, that person deserves it, right? No, I know, it's not. We don't do it. We are spiritual people. So, let's look at that phrase there in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, look at that phrase, it says, be put away from you. That's an imperative. It's a command. Put away. Knock it off. Just stop doing what you're doing. Drop it altogether. Paul is not telling them, just buckle up and pray, you know, pray, everything is going to fall in place. He said, knock it off, take it off. Like you take off your stinky old clothes, you need to take off your old pattern of living. Get rid of your evil behavior as far away as possible from you. Put it off. It's a command. There's a sense of urgency. Put it off, bolt the door on it, and don't look at it again. Get rid of it. Because living this kind of life is a denial of who you are in Christ. Don't live that kind of life. you got to always remind yourselves, put it off. I must admit, I'm not a perfect person as a pastor. Sometimes you think pastors ought to be perfect. You think pastors never have arguments with their wives. No, we do disagree on many things. And sometimes one of those things, you know, I know you don't experience that, but you don't talk for a while. And then you wait for the other person to come and say, I'm sorry. And you wait, and you wait, and you know the Holy Spirit tugging in you, convicting you, you can't do that, you got to say sorry. No, I'm right. She needs to do it. Anybody? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do. And then finally, I have to get my pride out of the way and say, I am so sorry for what I did. And it's not just saying sorry for what I did. I have to identify. I identify this is what did. This is what happened. This was pride in me causing me to do that. And that's what we read here. Put it off. Away from you. 
Just like you go come back from the gym and you're worked out and you're sweaty and it's it's stinky, you don't just take new clothes over it and walk to your workplace. You take off your old clothes, you shower and you put on new clothes. True? That's what we need to be doing here. Let's come to the next outline, next point on the outline. Verse 32. It says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God and Christ forgave you. This is the second point. Put on kindness. Tender-hearted. Being tender-hearted and forgiving. Put on kindness, tender-heartedness and forgiveness. I mean, the way to get rid of negative virtue is to put on the positive virtue. Be kind to one another, Paul says. It means you ought to put on kindness. Kindness, by the way, is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. And Paul says, even though it's a fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God enables you to be kind, you are to actively cultivate kindness as an attitude of your life. Keep on becoming kind. It's not merely turning a switch on and off when you need to be kind. Kindness should be an attitude of your life. By the way, it's a present imperative. Now, those of you who have been in this church for a long time, and I say present imperative, you know what it means. Imperative means it's a command, right? And when you say present, and it's a continual command. You keep on doing what you're doing. Continually. No coffee breaks. Continually, it's a command, a lifestyle of kindness. And by the way, we will never arrive at perfect kindness because the act of becoming kind is a lifelong process. It's a journey uh, till we become more like Christ. And we're becoming Christ-like every day. But one day we will see Him face to face and we will be transformed into the image of His glory. But till then, you've got to put on kindness. It's a process, it's a journey, it's progressive. You'll never arrive at it. But one day you will. That's called glorification. And we're all waiting for glorification. That's what we're saying. Come Lord Jesus, come. Quickly. Kindness means friendliness. Pleasant. Gentle. It's treating others as Christ treated us. I mean, you take an active interest in the other person. First Peter chapter 2, verse 3 says, You, if you have indeed tasted the Lord is good, what's the response? You will be kind to other people. You will desire to be kind to other people. And now kindness and tenderheartedness goes together because the next aspect says there is, Be kind to one another and says tenderhearted. It comes from the Greek word, and listen to this, it comes from the Greek word called eusplagnos. Eusplagnos. You means well, and splagnos means bowels. We'll say in the Greek culture, it meant good bowel. Because in the Greek, emotions was attached to the bowel. We know this. You wake up in the middle of the night with a nightmare, what part of your body is actually acting funny as soon as you get a nightmare? You wake up. You're throbbing of the heart. Your heart's racing quick, right? So thinking was done in the mind, according to Greek culture. But when you go to a doctor's office, what part of your body responds when you go to a doctor's office or you sit in the exam hall? Something happens in your bowel, right? The churning of the bowel. 
So that was always associated with emotions. And so here, Paul is using the word tender-hearted. That means you are to have strong feelings for another person's well-being. It's compassionate. It's empathetic. You're concerned about other people. You're feeling for other people. You're sympathetic towards other people. You're compassionate in a sense. You see their troubles as something that is more important than yours. In fact, you see their troubles and say, my troubles aren't that important. I need to take care of their troubles because you are tender-hearted. Paul goes on to say in verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? Just as Christ forgave you. Just as God forgave you. God and Christ forgave you. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a promise. J. Adams, he writes, When God forgives, he just goes on record and says, I will remember your sins no more. Forgiveness is an action in which you forgive others as God has forgiven you. So Paul is saying here that if people have done wrong to you, forgive them. He does not say pretend nothing happened. He doesn't say that. Forgiveness on the other hand is realizing what has happened to the fullest extent and forgiving the other person in spite of it. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. You can never forget unless you get into amnesia. Got hit on the wall, lost your memory, don't remember anything else. That's a different story. But if you're alive and well, you will remember every single thing that happened in your life. That's called memory. Neither does God have amnesia. So when God says he forgives, he doesn't say, I forget. He says, chooses not to remember it anymore. So forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness does not mean saying, well, I forgive you, but then giving a cold shoulder to the other person. Forgiveness does not mean I forgive you, but I don't want to see your ugly face again. We read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, Bearing with one another, even as one, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, why is the Lord has forgiven you? It's not just moral education. It's not say forgive one another. It says you forgive one another. There's a reason what follows on in Christianity, and that is because Christ forgave you. So you're just telling your children to be good. There's a reason why you need to be good. Because God is good and God is, is the one who is enabling you to be good. And there's no one good except God alone. And that's why we need a Savior. This is exactly what Paul tells you. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And how many times do you forgive? Once? Twice? There was a question that Peter had in the Bible in Matthew chapter 18. How many times, Lord, should I forgive? You know what the Lord said? Seven times seventy. That means four hundred and ninety times, if you got your math right, right? If someone offended you, how many times? Four hundred and ninety times you could forgive. How many times have I offended you, brother? 
once, twice, three times, four times, five times, ten times, fifteen times, three hundred and sixty-five times, you still do what? Speak to me. Forgive. We see this in Matthew chapter 18 with the parable. Verses 23 to 35. The parable of a certain king and his servants. One of the servants was brought to the king and he owed the king 10,000 talents. I think Jerry Bridges in his book says 200,000 years of wages. The king commanded that he be sold along with his family and his children and payment be made to the king. The servant fell at the king's feet and pleaded for patience until he had paid his debt. The king had mercy on him. The Bible reads that he was moved with compassion and forgave him of his death and let him free. But the same servant went away and found a fellow servant who owed him hundred denarii. Maybe three months worth of pay. He laid his hands on him, took him by his throat saying, pay me all that you owe. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and sought patience until he had paid his debt. But the man would not and cast him into prison. And the text goes on to read that the servant saw this when it reported this to the king. The king called the servant who was forgiven of the Lord's death and told him, Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had compassion on you? And the parable ends with this sad ending. The servant who was not willing to forgive was cast into prison until he paid back what he had owed. And he could never, ever pay back what he had owed the king. The message is very clear. The king here is God and the servant who was forgiven of the Lord's death is us, each one of us. We could never repay God even if we had all eternity to do it, my beloved. But we cried for mercy. And as soon as we cried for mercy, God forgave us of all our sins. God had pity on us and he released us of all our death. And what do we do? We turn around and we look at our spouse and for one offense, we hold bitterness, unforgiving attitude. Whether it's your spouse, turn around, whether it's maybe one of the members sitting here. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's your worker. Maybe it's your boss. And you hold on to unforgiveness. John McCarter writes, If God, who had received the infinitely greater offense, can forgive us, then how much more should we believers, who have been offended far less, must forgive our fellow believers? As Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in the same way we are to forgive others. Adrian Rogers, he writes, When you forgive, you heal a broken relationship and you gain back a brother. Think about when people who name the name of Jesus live with broken relationships. He says, do you know what that does? 
If there is in your heart today bitterness and grudge and unforgiveness, first of all, he says, you disgrace the Almighty God. Second, he says, it discourages the saints. He continues, Satan would rather start a fight among brothers in the church than sell a barrel of whiskey any day. Beloved, are there people in your life that you have not forgiven? That you find it difficult to forgive? Maybe someone has grieved you. Maybe someone has hurt you, grieved you beyond despair. Maybe it's you perceived it. Maybe that person never intended that. And you have not resolved it in your mind. And you are toying with it. And you are playing with it. And you wake up with that unresolved issue. And you lay, go down to bed at night. And you, you look up to the ceiling. And you are playing the same issue over and over and over in your mind. Beloved, you need to bury the hatchet. Bury it. Don't let it stick out of the ground so that you can look at it and remind yourselves you need to bury the hatchet completely and fully. Freely, freely you have received. Freely, freely give. Forgiving means you choose to make a deliberate decision to forget the offense. Choose not to remember it anymore. Not to remember it anymore. There was a man whose office files were getting so full of extra papers. He was a man who couldn't throw away anything. And the files get, got fuller and fuller and fuller. One day his secretary said to him, Sir, can I feel if, uh, clean out the files? He said, Well, okay, clean them out. But before you throw anything away, make a copy of it. Is this the way we forgive? You put the gavel down and say, case dismissed. And you refuse to remember their sins anymore. Meaning, if another offense would happen, and people are imperfect, if another offense would happen to you again, you do not go up to that person and say, well, you did this to me five years ago. You did this to me three years ago. You did this to me two years ago. You did this to me three months ago. You did it to me yesterday. You're keeping in a record of all the offenses the other person has done towards you. That is not forgiveness, my beloved. You have not buried the hatchet. When missionaries in northern Alaska were translating the Bible into language of the Eskimos... They discovered there was no word in that language for forgiveness. After much patient listening, they discovered a word that means not able to think about it anymore. The word was used throughout the translation to represent forgiveness because God's promise to repentant sinners is this. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more.
Some people say, well, I'll wait. I'll teach them a lesson. I'm going to show them how much I've been hurt. I'm going to give them an attitude. I'm going to give them a cold shoulder. I'm going to make them suffer. I'm going to make them bleed. And after a while, I'll forgive them. That is not forgiving freely. You need to get down to ground zero and deal with the love of Christ. Beloved, think about it. If you have unforgiveness in your life, or if you find a person is not is dealing hard on these issues and he's struggling, you do not lay to rest unless you deal with this. You pursue that person. You chase that person. You go after him. You plead with him. Maybe that God and His providence would lead him to repentance or lead her to repentance. Maybe this may be the only opportunity you have. Who knows? You may not see the other person again. You don't want to be caught on this side of the eternity, right? With unresolved issues, with unforgiving attitudes, do you? You don't want to be caught on this side of eternity with unforgiveness. You know, that's what God did. When Adam and Eve sinned, God did not sit up there and say, wait, I'm going to just sit up here. I'm just going to wait. He came down to the garden and he sought after Adam and Eve. Let us put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice and let us put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness as God in Christ forgave you. Beloved, if I stop here, it would just be a moralistic sermon. I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel is this, that Christ died for us on the cross. We as people sinned against God, we were under the wrath of a holy God. God is so holy and loving and gracious that He sent Jesus Christ to die for us upon the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become, have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so when you, in faith and repentance, look up to Christ... He saves you. And as He saves you, gives you the righteousness that belongs to Christ Jesus. You get that righteousness. And when God looks at you, He sees Christ in you. You and I will never be able to live this life that the Bible tells us to live if we are not transformed by the gospel. You and I need this gospel every single day of our life, even as believers, my friends. We will fail. And this is why we need to remind ourselves that we need constantly to depend on the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you have the righteousness of Christ. You're positionally, perfectly righteous with Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation upon you. Even though when you sin, God has forgiven you a past, present, and future. So what do you do now? 1 John 1, nine says, If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Cry out to Him. And you restore the joy 
of that salvation. There's no condemnation upon you as a believer. And if you're an unbeliever, let me tell you, friend, there's only one way to live this life, and that is have your heart transformed by the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when he transforms you, he seals you with a promised Holy Spirit, and that enables you, you get the resurrection power to live a life that the scripture tells you to live. Now you live your life not in order to get saved. You live your life because you're saved by the gospel. Now it's your joy and your delight to live the way God wants you to live. And may that be our joy and our delight as we continue to live our lives here on earth. May God continue to teach you from, your, from this word and eliminate his word to you every day. Father, we are so thankful that we are able to come into your presence, looking into your word, studying your word, and it is in your word and your word alone that we find life, eternal life. And so I pray that you would do your work in people who are believers here, that you would restore to them the joy that they come before you, that there will be forgiveness and for unbelievers that they would seek after you for salvation. That you would change them and give them eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for your promise. You are a good God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.